This is no doubt the strangest sermon I've ever given. And I think made stranger by the fact that this is my first sermon to the Saints at NBC. Sadly, I don't think it'll be my last like it. Preaching is, of course, and I think we understand this intuitively, something that's done um, from one person to another in real time and space, right? It's done in the context of the corporate gathering, and in one sense, it's an event as the people of God um, gather in expectation to hear God's words in the presence of God through the preacher of God. But I'm, of course, in a room by myself, trusting that the Lord will use this in the lives of our people. In many respects, what I'm doing shares a lot in common with letter writing. I feel what what uh, Paul was feeling in Philippians, longing for the saints of NPC with the affection of Christ. Um, but we're separated by time and space, right? We're huddled in our homes. There's a gap between my preaching and your listening. And just like a letter, there's an author, there's an audience, and a purpose. And all letters carry this format, author, audience, purpose, a even we, we know that instinctively. Right when we get a letter, we look at um, who it's from, who it's to, what it's about. And that, and that for us will tell us the value of the letter. We know, of course, that this is written by the Apostle Paul. It's to the to a church in Philippi. And then there's a specific purpose as to why is Paul writing the book. And anytime you get to a letter, this ought to be these ought to be the things that you're asking. Who wrote it, to whom, and why? Why this book? Why now even? And what I want to do is sketch the events from Paul's leaving Philippi to him writing this letter from prison. We, of course, earlier we read um, Acts chapter 16, or most of it at least, with Paul getting to Philippi and then with his leaving. I want to pick up from there, um, kind of sketching the events, at least of his relationship with the Philippians, up to him writing the book. So in about AD 51, Paul, Luke, Silas, and Timothy... They leave Asia Minor for Macedonia, and their very first stop is in Philippi, a Roman colony. And then Paul starts what is the very first church in Europe. And the congregation, it's a ragtag group, right? Its first members, Lydia, she's a wealthy God-fearing merchant in her household, um, a Roman jailer and his family, and this former, a former fortune-telling slave girl. If you had read a book about church planning, they would tell you a couple things. One, um... Not to start with a group as diverse as this, who has nothing in common. And and then certainly they would tell you not to start a church right after a pandemic. But, of course, all in the Lord's timing and with the Lord's people. So after being beaten, flogged, imprisoned, asked by the authorities to leave, Paul leaves the city. He heads west for Thessalonica. He has a pretty short stay there that's similar to his stay in Philippi. But while he's there... Paul says that on several occasions, the Philippians, they sent um, financial support to him. Then Paul leaves from there, a couple other cities, ends up in Corinth. He's there for maybe a year to year and a half. Again, the Philippians send support for Paul. Sometime later, Paul begins or goes on what is called uh, Paul's third missionary journey. What he's doing is he's going back to the church that he's previously planted. He's checking in on them. And what he's doing is raising funds for the poor, struggling church in Jerusalem. And part of his intention is to show forth um, the unity between Jew and Gentile um, in the Gentiles providing for and supporting their Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. 
But while Paul's on this missionary journey, these group of people, Judaizers, they're really like anti-missionaries. They're coming up, up behind Paul to kind of do cleanup duty. Paul is preaching we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The Judaizers are saying, yeah, grace, faith, Christ, that's fine. Um, insofar as you understand we're saved by Christ and the law, by faith and observance to the law. They're saying Christ plus nothing is actually nothing. And um, Paul would have passed, he passed through Macedonia. He likely would have warned them about these Judaizers. And while he's there, he actually had no intention to raise support from among the Philippians because they were struggling with poverty at this time. But they plead with Paul, again, because they love him. They want to support this, the ministry of the saints in Jerusalem. They want to partner with Paul. They plead with Paul to have the opportunity. And they give, Paul says, abundantly, not out of their wealth, but as an overflow of their joy and their poverty. Paul, he finishes up his third missionary journey. He ends up in Jerusalem with the gift, of course. He ends up being in prison there. After two years, he appeals to Rome. The Philippians hear about Paul being in Rome and his worsened state there. Things are getting worse and worse. They maybe have heard that it's likely he'll die as well. Um, and so the Philippians, they muster together um, a large gift for them, and they send Epaphroditus, someone from the church, to take it to Paul. Epaphroditus nearly dies on the way. He makes it to Paul and um, gives Paul the gift and no doubt ups, updates Paul about what's going on. So Paul naturally writes a letter um, to tell the Philippians about how he's doing, to let them know that Epaphroditus is okay because some t quite a bit of time would have elapsed. And, um, and then he's responding to some of the things that Epaphroditus would have told Paul. Right? So the church is suffering at the hands of the empire, much like Paul for the sake of the gospel. And so Paul is writing to encourage them. God has not only granted that they would believe in the gospel, but that they would suffer for it. And secondly, they're beginning to experience disunity in their body. This is understandable given that they began with a diverse group. This disunity, it's uh, particularly among two prominent women in the church. But their unity, is, it's paramount for the integrity and witness of the gospel. And then thirdly, it's possible that the Judaizers' theology, so these Jesus plus law folks, it's either reach Philippi or there's a risk that it will. And Paul wants to avoid what happened in Galatia. Okay, so much of the letter centers around these two things in particular, or these two concerns of Paul, Christian unity. That is, Christians must have unity. They should be unified in purpose and affection, and it ought to be Christian unity, right? Our unity, it, it needs to be centered upon the real Christ in his gospel. So there's a unity, not just of purpose and affections, but of doctrine. That's the backdrop of our book. Um, and the text for this morning is Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And it reads this way. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ. 
in, until the day of Christ Jesus. Indeed, it is right for me to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart. And you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment, so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that though we are right now separated from one another due to this pandemic, we do pray that the preached word would go forth, that it would bear fruit, that your word would not return void or empty. We do pray of our church that our love would grow in knowledge and discernment, that we uh, may be able to approve the things that are superior, that should Christ return, that he would find us, that we would be pure and blameless. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to look at three aspects of the text this morning. First, Paul's partnership with the Philippians. Second, Paul's confidence in the Philippians. And thirdly, Paul's prayer for the Philippians. So his his partnership, his confidence, and his prayer. Beginning with Paul's partnership with the Philippians, what does Christian partnership look like? We see here that it's affectionate and it's missional. Beginning in verse 1, Paul and Timothy's servants of Christ Jesus. Timothy's not a co-author, but he's a co-sender, and this becomes clear as you go. It's written from Paul's perspective. He actually speaks about sending Timothy later on, but but Timothy is attached to it because he meant so much to him that even just seeing him as a co-sender would further encourage them. What's more striking is the titles that they assume. Servants of Christ Jesus. The word is doulos and it means slave. Okay, No first century person hearing doulos would think servant. They would hear slave. English translators have rendered it servant, and understandably so, in an effort to distance the word from our understanding of slavery. Roman slavery um, was not like um, chattel or colonial slavery, which we think about. It, was, it wasn't man-stealing or forceful subjugation. It was far more humane and regulated. We, of course, don't have t- time to talk about all the differences. What we do understand, what they share in common, is that a slave belongs to another, their master. And their work, their future, their aspirations, their freedom, their will, it's wholly subject to another person. This is actually the only opening letter where Paul takes the title doulos, without including the title apostle. He has such a friendly relationship with the Philippians that he doesn't need to assert his authority at all. He comes solely as a servant. He's saying, like he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, that we're not lords. Christ is Lord. We're his servants for your sake. He is modeling the humility of Christ that we'll see in chapter 2. It's, of course, written to the Philippians, to everyone there, um, In verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. A standard Greco-Roman letter, it follows the same format. Um, Author, audience, and then it would say greetings. Paul's taken and he's changed it to grace, and it's a play on words in, um, in Greek as well. So from greetings to grace, and he adds peace. And it's like a blessing or or prayer. May God be gracious to you. May he extend peace to you. Friends, there's 
nothing we need more than for God, the Holy Creator, to deal graciously with us, to treat us in a way that we don't deserve. And in times of uncertainty, like we're in right now, is there anything we need more than peace? The world might be scrambling. Death and sickness may be on our doorsteps. Our bodies might fail us. But we have what no scientist can produce, what no government can manufacture, what no rich person can purchase. Peace with God. And it comes from God and from the Lord Jesus Christ. The same Lord who emptied himself, becoming a man, humbling himself to the point of death on a cross, that we might have peace. Paul says he is their servant, their slave, right? And grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying a joy for all of you in my every prayer. Paul's not saying he's in a constant state of praying for them as if he doesn't do other things like, you know, eating or sleeping. Um, But he is saying that every time he remembers them, he thanks God for them. And every time he thanks God, he prays for them. And when he's praying for them, every single one of them, even those who are fighting with one another, when he prays for every single one of them and every one of his prayers, it's done with joy. Paul's partnership with the Philippians, it's teeming with affection, right? His ministry is personal. They're not projects to him. He's not using them for financial gain. He's not writing a a thank you letter to short future support. He loves them such that he can't even think about them without overflowing with joyful thanksgiving to God. He can't help but to remember them. He can't help but to pray for them. And when he does so, he does so with thanksgiving and joy. Going down to verse 7, he says, Indeed, it is right for me to think this way about you. That is, it's natural. It's fitting that I feel joyfully um, and with gratitude. He says, Because I have you in my heart. See, Paul, he's not seeking to flatter the Philippians. This is real, authentic, bubbling over affection and commitment on Paul's, on behalf of Paul. They're in his heart. They've been hidden deep inside the most intimate part of him. I regularly tell Haddon, I love you. Then I ask him, Haddon, can you do anything that will make me love you more or less? And he says, no. I say, why not? He says, because you love me with your whole heart. Or he might say, because you love me with my whole heart. He messes it up, but he gets it, right? The heart is the deepest part of a person. This is what real ministry looks like. No doubt many of us have been part of churches and ministries where we felt more like a number or a means to an end. That's not gospel ministry, right? This is this is fueled by love and care, commitment, affection. You might think, yeah, I, I get that between a father and son or uh, between spouses even. I don't really get that between an apostle and a church or between a pastor and a member or member and member. It seems so unnatural. And you'd, and you'd be right. It is unnatural. Look at verse 8. For God is my witness, how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul misses them. He longs for them. And he does so with the affection of Christ. This kind of affection, desire, longing, love, um, the source of that is not us. It's not self-love. right? Self-love doesn't produce this or lead to this. This is the love of God. And that's exactly what Paul's saying. 
He loves them the way that Christ loves them and that the love of Christ is the source of this love. It's not just that he wants to kick it with them. He, he cares for their spiritual good. Friends, is, is this how we feel about one another during the season? Do we long for one another with the affections of Christ? It can be easy to confuse longing um, that's motivated from self-love, like, I miss you because you provide this service for me, or we have this worldly thing in common. It's easy to confuse that with the affection of Christ, but that's distinct. That's, that's like, I'm, I miss you because I love you, and I actually desire your good in Christ. That, as Paul prays, you're growing in love and knowledge, that you're pure and blameless, that you possess the fruit of righteousness. Is this how we feel for one another during this season? And if not, how do we cultivate this kind of ministry of affection? First, and I think this is counterintuitive, we look to Christ. If we want to really long for one another, it begins not with thinking about each other, but with longing for Christ. We'll see this in Philippians chapter 2, but the remedy for disunity, it's not reflecting on the few things that we have in common. It's... The remedy for disunity is looking to the humility of Jesus. If we want to love one another, we need to grow in love of God. And then the two other things we ought to do, they actually coincide with our next two points, partnership and prayer. If you want to grow meaningful friendships in Christ, partner together in the gospel and pour yourself out in prayer on their behalf to God. Gospel partnership in prayer, they're the seedbeds for Christian friendship. This is uh, part of the reasons why we encourage you to pray through the membership directory. Yes, of course, because we're communing with God. God listens to our prayers. And, and it has this tertiary effect where it knits our hearts together. And then, of course, partnering together in the gospel does this very same thing. And this is what Paul has with the Philippians. Um, it was actually their partnership in ministry that led to the affections. Look at verse 4 again. Paul says he's always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer. Why? Verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Because of your partnership in the gospel. Paul's using gospel here as a shorthand for gospel proclamation. Um, I think what he's doing in verse 7 is he's expounding it. Right? He says, your partnership with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in defense and confirmation of the gospel. So the Philippians, they have a partnership with Paul in the proclamation of the gospel from the first day until now, both in his imprisonment and in the defense of the gospel. So in one sense, Paul, he's speaking the broadest sense, right? It's they're partners with him in the gospel. They believe the same gospel. They're committed to living worthy of the gospel and sharing it in Philippi. But here, Paul is speaking more specifically about their financial aid from the first day, their support of him in Thessalonica, until now, the gift that he just received in Rome from Epaphroditus. Philippians chapter 4, verses 15 through 17. And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my need several times. It was actually Paul's policy not to take support from those he preached to because he didn't want to confuse his message. Right, that grace is free. But the Philippians pleaded with Paul for an opportunity to partner with them. Second Corinthians chapter eight, verses one through five. Paul says, We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that was given to the churches of Macedonia. That is, 
Paul's actually calling their giving or their opportunity to give here grace. Verse 2, during a severe trial brought about by affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. I can testify that according to their ability and even beyond their ability of their own accord, they begged us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in the ministry to the saints. And not just as we had hoped, instead they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us by God's will. The Philippian church, unlike any other church, Paul had shared in the ministry to the saints. They were his partners. And this is part of the way Paul feels about them um, the way that he does. If you've ever had a business partner or a lab partner or a marital partner, you understand partnership, right? It's reciprocal. You can do different work, but the effort is parallel. It's measured. And in fact, we all tried to do our very best in avoiding you know, partnering with people who will do less work. Um, unless you're lazy, then you try to partner with people who will do more work. And from a worldly perspective, Paul and the Philippians aren't partners in any, any real meaningful sense, right? Some would say Paul doesn't have a real job. He's just kind of living or smooching off the Philippians, or uh, maybe the Philippians are just like investors, and Paul's the one doing, actually doing all the work. You know, He's just flattering them by calling them partners. But that's not the case. Paul's saying their financial support of him is partnership. When Paul shared the gospel in Thessalonica, Berea, Corinth, and Rome, it was to the credit of the Philippians. When he planted churches, it was their ministry. The new converts, mature disciples, mature churches of Paul's ministry, it was the fruit of the Philippians' ministry. Part of the means by which God has advanced the gospel for the last 2,000 years is through the faithful giving of saints to their churches. It allows us to, our giving allows us to go and to do things that we would not otherwise be able to do. And our, our grandparents understood this. And our great-grandparents understood this. And we can say what we want about their theology, how they did church, their individual ep- efforts to disciple their children or others. But they understood that their gifts were legitimate means of advancing the gospel. And they, on a whole, gave faithfully and sacrificially in a way that I think would simultaneously shame us and inspire us of the Philippians, right? It wasn't out of an abundance of their riches, but an abundance of joy and poverty. They gave beyond their means. You see, you don't have to you don't have to buy into the prosperity gospel to give abundantly. Buy into the gospel, into the reality that Christ is all sufficient, all worthy, and buy into the means that he has instituted, the preaching of the word. And yes, it's a task for all of us, but pastors, missionaries <clears throat> shoulder a unique burden, right? In being Um, In the case of a missionary on frontier lines or a pastor in equipping the saints for the work of the ministry to build up the body of Christ. And friends, I pray that this would be our legacy at NBC, right? We may not be very big. We don't have a huge budget. But we can partner together to take the gospel to the ends of the earth by whatever means God will allow us to play. We, of course, do this in preaching, in praying, in giving, in discipling. These are the most fundamental elements of our covenant with one another, and it's how we partner with each other in the work of the ministry. So Paul, he's got this affectionate, missional partnership with the Philippians. Um, We've considered that. Now we turn to consider Paul's confidence in the Philippians. I've said this a couple times, but Philippians is often regarded as an extended thank you letter, right, for their 
long-term support to him and their most recent gift to him. But it's missing one really interesting thing for a thank you letter. A thank you. Look at verse 3. I give thanks to whom? To my God for every remembrance of you. Paul doesn't thank the Philippians, but God. Their faithfulness is the fruit of God's work. And Paul's presenting us with this vision of the bigness of God in the lives of the saints. It's what we would call the sovereignty of God. In Paul's confidence, it's not in the Philippians, but in God. Not in their efforts, not in their works, not in their financial support, not in their ability to hold on. It's in God. Verse 6, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Lest the Philippians be confused about what's really going on, their sacrificial giving and partnership from the first day, the past until now, the present, is because God started a good work in them, past, and he'll bring it to completion, future. God is the one who saved them. God is the one who's saving them, and God will save them. And Paul is sure of it. He's confident. He's certain. This little colony of heaven in a colony of Rome will make it home. But it's not a confidence in the Philippians. It's in God. He who started the work, he will carry it on. He will complete it until, all the way up until the very end, up until the day of Christ. What makes the gospel, right, that sinners can be reconciled with God, what makes it good news is that it's a gift. What God determined in election, in choosing a people for himself, what the Son accomplished in dying as a substitute for their sins, what the Spirit applied in giving them the gifts of faith, repentance, and generation, What God began, he will finish. There's no question about it. All of us have have begun things we haven't finished, right? Jobs, degrees, like 30 New Year's resolutions. Some of us probably, we've made kind of like quarantine resolutions. Well, I've got all this time at home. I'm going to read more. I'm going to work out more. Some of us, um, we've been quit on by previous friends, spouses. Some of us have been quit on, so to speak, by our our employers most recently. Being in our in our homes right now, we're seeing all the projects we've begun but haven't finished. We are, of course, finite, fickle creatures. But friends, it's not so with God. You can take His promises to the bank. Your perseverance doesn't ultimately depend upon you. It depends upon Him. And praise God for that. You see, perseverance is less about us making it though he does preserve us through our faith, it's less about us making it and more about God preserving us. Our statement of faith reads this way, of the saints, it says, that their perseverance depends not upon their will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election, flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father, upon the efficacy and merit and intercession of Jesus Christ in union with him, and upon the Spirit's sealing and abiding presence, the guarantee of their inheritance. If you are in Christ, the only way you don't make it home is if God changes his mind or becomes a liar, and he won't. If the son's blood loses its efficacy or if he stops interceding for you, and he won't. Or if the spirit removes his seal, it's not going to happen. It's more certain than whether this virus will pass, more certain than whether our economy will rebound, more certain than whether the sun will rise in the morning. 
What God has begun, he will finish in the lives of his children. Jesus says in John chapter 10 that he gives eternal life to his sheep. They will never perish. They're in the hands of the Father, never to be snatched away. That's sovereign security unlike anything the world can offer us. We're in his hands. And ain't no one stealing us. And there's no jumping out. When I walk with Pavy crossing the street or in a parking lot, Pavy, she's our daughter. She's coming up on two and a half. <clears throat> she hates it, right? She went, oh, and this is what, you know, this is back when you could take your children places like at parking lots two weeks ago. But she hates it. She holds onto my hand. She tries to get out of my hand. She tries to squirm away, right? She wants to be independent. She doesn't experience that little thing that most of us feel, uh, fear. And my biggest concern is not someone snatching her, though, you know, that certainly could happen. My biggest concern for her is her freeing herself from my hand and running off only to be hit by a car, right? Her greatest enemy is herself, her own conception of freedom and joy, her own proclivity towards self-destruction. We're saints, yes, but sinners still. And if it weren't for God's work in preserving us, not a single one of us would make it home. But because God does preserve us, every single one of us will make it home. Salvation is a gift, and God is the best gift giver of all. If you're not a Christian, I'm so thankful that you're listening in, that you've made it this far. Our confidence in spending eternity with God might strike you as arrogance, but it's not. And it's because our hope is not in us, it's in Christ. We believe that humanity's biggest problem is sin. That we've offended a holy and just God, and there's nothing we can do about it. No amount of good deeds or moral change or effort. But in Christ, God the Son became a man. He lived perfectly on our behalf, living the life we should have lived. He died for our sins innocently but justly, taking the punishment we deserved. And he rose from the dead in victory. He now offers you true and eternal life as a gift. He saves us from by grace from beginning to end. And you can have this if you turn from your sins and trust in Christ. You see, our confidence, it's not rooted in us or our efforts, but in Christ. It's not about looking to ourselves, but to God, His character, His unchanging character, His decrees, His promises, His work in His Son. We look to God that is the source of our confidence and our hope. And then that brings us to our last section, Paul's prayer for the Philippians. How does a man with this confidence in God and this partnership, affection, history of mission with the Philippians, how does, how does he pray for them? He tells us, verses 9 through 11, And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge in every kind of discernment, so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Friends, are you praying through the membership directory for the members? And what kind of prayers are you praying? See, Paul's prayers, 
that we would grow in love, in knowledge, that we'd be filled with the fruit of righteousness, that we'd be pure and blameless. Notice that all of his prayer points, they're successive and they're interconnected, right? It's love that grows in knowledge and discernment that leads to the ability to approve what is superior, that leads to our being pure and blameless on the day of Christ, that leads to the glory and praise of God. But at the beginning of Paul's prayer, at its very heart, and what begins this chain reaction, ultimately resulting in glory and praise to God, is growth in love. Of all the things Paul chooses to pray for, he begins with the most basic thing that our love would grow, that it would abound more and more, that it would increase. This, of course, being most fundamentally love of God that leads to love of neighbor. The most basic question for us, though, is what is love? It's such a confused thing in our culture, and I think evangelicals kind of unwittingly hitch themselves to how the world defines love, which sometimes it's as um, kind of broad or nebulous as sentimentality. It's like love is warm fuzzies. More often, we tend to define love as self-expression. So the highest virtue in our culture has become not being true to God or faithful to one's commitment to spouse or tradition or family or country, right? But it's about being true to yourself. So we think about love as self-expression, you be you. And then similarly, we think about love as tolerance because if love is self-expression, then the most loving thing I can do is to let someone be themselves. This, of course, is not love according to the Bible. Love in the Bible is rooted in the very character and nature of God. God is love, and all his acts are loving. True love corresponds to his goodness and his righteousness. We could think about love this way. Love is a commitment to someone's good that involves the whole person, affection, intellect, and behavior. Okay, Love is it's a commitment to someone someone else's good that involves our whole person, our whole feeling, thinking, and doing. So that means an increase in love for God or for neighbor means a greater commitment to God or neighbor that involves our whole person, our thoughts, our feelings, our volition. Look at verse 9. Paul says that this love ought to grow in knowledge and all discernment. There's this inextricable link between love of God and knowledge of God. Love grows as knowledge and discernment grow, and in a sense, knowledge and discernment grow as love grows. Because love is a commitment to another's good, it can't be mindless. I worked for a number, or I guess a couple of parachurches, so I spent a number of years with college students and with young adults, and if I had a dollar for every time I heard something like, um, I don't care about doctrine, I just want to love God, or, you know, I don't care about theology, I just want to make disciples. Well, I would be as rich as that comment is stupid. <laughs> Paul is saying that our love ought to grow in knowledge and with all discernment. And when Paul says knowledge here, he certainly means more than doctrine, but he doesn't mean anything less than it. He's talking about us actually learning, knowing, experiencing God. Okay, the love of God requires us to see him for who he is, not as who we, how we'd like him to be, but to see God for who he is in study and to savor him. Could you imagine getting married, making a commitment to your now spouse, and then telling them, um, you don't want to learn anything about them anymore. 
listen, babe, I love you. I would appreciate it if you stopped telling me about yourself, your preferences, your desires, your motives. I just want to love you. Well, <laughs> you could try it out and see how it goes. It would be hard to love your spouse when you don't know anything about her and when you spend all your time sleeping on the couch. God desires for us to love him not with a mindless love, but with a love that is motivated by knowledge of him. It's actually what we know about God that leads us to love him. And God desires to speak to us through his word. We have access to the very words of God in our scriptures. We can study them on our own, and especially so when we come together corporately, and I long the day that we can do so again. If our love lacks knowledge, it's immature at best. At worst, it's not love. If I say I love my wife, but exert no effort to um, to actually know her, then I've probably confused love for self-love. Paul wants us to grow. He wants our love to grow in knowledge and all discernment so that what? Verse 10, we may approve the things that are superior. As love abounds, as knowledge increases, we grow in discernment so that we may approve the things that are superior. This is essentially a prayer for wisdom which in many respects is the coming together of love and knowledge. We ought to be able to discern between competing options and actually choose the better one with respect to the things of God. Judging what is superior, it's really second nature to us um, with respect to the things that we love and we know. Okay, I love and I know wings. Yes, chicken wings. And... Lord willing, when this pandemic passes, one of the first things I'm going to do is gather with friends over some wings. And I can tell you which wings in the city are the best and what makes them the best. There are a lot of things to consider. Chicken quality, the sauce, the consistency. Sometimes you go to a wings place and it's good and the next time you go back and it's terrible. How it makes you feel afterwards. I think even the fries that are paired, you got to consider. Um, perhaps the atmosphere. Many of us, we, we instinctively know things like what makes this car better than this, this one? What makes this salon better for eyebrows than that one? What makes this team better um, or more superior than that one? This website better for this news? This site better for this other kind of news? What makes this latte better than that one, right? We know the things that we love and we can make judgments about what's superior based on that knowledge and love. Friends, how are we doing at approving the things that are superior with respect to the Lord? These are the kind of questions, not that there's anything wrong with those things, being able to tell what good chicken wings are. These are the kind of questions we should be learning how to answer. How should I spend all the free time the Lord has given me in this season? How can I love my neighbors right now? What kind of roommate should I have? What kind of person should I date and marry? Should I even be dating or trying to marry right now? How should I spend my retirement? What kind of TV shows should I and shouldn't I watch based on their content? What kind of music should I fill my home with? What kind of steps should I take to fight sin? How should the Lord's Day impact my vacation calendar? Um, 
Should I move to the city for this job when I know there's not a good church nearby? If love is a commitment to the glory and goodness of God, then as it grows, we seek to joyfully, willingly submit ourselves to God and His law, knowing that He loves us, meaning He has good in store for us. True love ought to increase in knowledge and discernment so that we may be able to prove the things that are superior. Why? Two things, so that we may be pure and blameless on the day of Christ, and that we may be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Okay, I think more obvious question here, what does it mean to be pure and blameless, filled with righteousness, the fruit of righteousness, and then what does it mean to be pure and blameless on the day of Christ? Purity can be understood positively. It means morally upright, right? We get the difference between pure and impure water. One you drink, the other you really shouldn't drink. And it's not just that you can drink the water, but that there is a sense of goodness to it. And then blamelessness is like the flip side, maybe the other side of the coin. It, it can be understood negatively. It means there's no cause for offense or fault. Um, it's like it's character that's above reproach. Paul uses the same language in Philippians 2, verses 14 and 15. He says, Do everything without grumbling and arguing, so that you may be blameless and pure. Children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world. You probably recall Kenan um, in our first time together preaching through this text. But here, Paul, he's speaking about our blamelessness in purity as a present reality. It's speaking to how we ought to live right now, right? We are to stand out against the crookedness and perversion of our generation and how we live. That doesn't mean we do so with um, an attitude of arrogance or condemnation. It just means that there ought to be a legitimate difference between us and our neighbors in the way we love one another, in the way we're unified, in the way we don't grumble, in the way we're helping our number, our neighbors during this crisis, in the way we're not fearing in the way that they might, in the way that we're hating evil and loving what is good in our homes. We ought to shine like the stars into an ever-increasing ever-increasing degree. You see, what God has said about us, that we're righteous, ought to be true more and more so in our lives. So Paul, he's not speaking about absolute perfection when he's perfection when he says he's praying that would be pure and blameless in the day of Christ. But he's speaking about our us living in such a way that we can genuinely, not totally, but genuinely be described as pure and without cause for fault. This is really important. Paul's not saying that our being pure, blameless, and righteous before God judicially is dependent upon how we live, okay? God has once and for all declared us righteous if we're in Christ. And Paul uses the same language in Colossians 1, but he's speaking about it there um, judicially or forensically. Colossians 1, 22, But now he has reconciled you by his physical body through death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. That's once for all when we were justified, we were declared righteous. God is looking not upon our sin, he looked at that sin as though it were on Christ on the cross, and now he looks upon us as though we have the righteousness of Christ. We are holy, faultless, blameless. What Paul is praying for here in Philippians is that what God has declared about us, righteous, would be true more and more so in our lives. And then when Christ returns, that he would actually find us as righteous people. If God says we're righteous, and he began a good work in us, making us new, then it ought to show up in our life. 
in fact, it can't not. James says that faith apart from works is dead. An apple tree, think about it, an apple tree that doesn't produce apples, it's a dead tree. James is saying that kind of faith does not save. This doesn't mean that faith plus works saves. It means that the kind of faith that saves leads to works. Think about it. If God is the one, he began the good work in us, it should be evident in us when Christ returns. We want Christ to return and to find us pure, blameless, filled with the fruit of righteousness. That is the fruit of the Spirit. Again, not perfectly so, but genuinely so. We, want, we don't want to feel shame at the return of Christ. One of the fun things about being a parent is you can spy on your kids and it not be a weird thing, at least not like a, a super weird thing. We, you know, it's a normal thing. You set up baby monitors in your kids' rooms. Um, there's one in Josie's room. I really don't ever look in on it. Jess does, of course, as a means to care for her. I like to look in on Haddon and Pavey's room <laughs> just to kind of see what they're up to, especially when there's a lot of noise going on. It's not that I'm trying to catch them in the act of doing something wrong, but I'm often just curious about what's going on. It's, it's just a joyful thing to watch them play. But sometimes when I'm watching them, you know, they're doing something wrong. And it might be a minor offense, like they're jumping on their bed with their shoes. And honestly, I probably just kind of chuckle about it, and I don't do anything. There are other times where maybe something is not a minor offense, it's major, it's serious. Like Haddon is being physically, you know, harsh um, in the way that he's playing with Pavey, where I can just tell from what's going on that he's being really, really unkind. Okay, I go in it, He, I go in the room, he immediately knows that I know, his face goes white. His eyes are wide open. And it's not that he fears I'm going to hurt him or anything. It's not that he's concerned that he's lost my love. But he senses a real, you might say from his perspective, divine displeasure. That I've found my son not acting like my son. There's an expectation that he lives in our house in a way that's consistent with love, knowledge, discernment but he's chosen otherwise. Friends, we want Christ to return to find us pure and blameless, not because we fear judgment, not because we think our works merit salvation. They don't. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And it's not so that we can have any reason to boast before him, right? This this fruit of righteousness comes through Jesus. God is the one who began the work. He's the one who's carrying it. He's the one who completes it. There will be no cause for us to boast before God. But we do it because we want it to lead, as verse 11 says, to the praise and glory of God. True knowledge of God that leads to true love of God, desires for the glory of God, for the praise of God. NBC, are there aspects in your life that are impure or give cause for blame? Does the knowledge and love of God motivate you to live a life that's pure and blameless? Paul's prayer in many respects captures a Christian life. God started a work in us. He will finish it. And from our perspective, this life, this good work looks like a life lived um, in love and knowledge that leads to moral purity that matches the character of in nature of God, a God who is good and holy and righteous and just and glorious. 
this is my prayer for us that we would grow in love that as our love grows in knowledge and discernment we'd be able to discern the things that please the lord and that should christ return that it wouldn't catch us by surprise that if he finds us we would not be um like the perverted or perverse generation around us that he would find us again not totally blameless or pure but genuinely so people who are living as though they love God and want to know Him and want to look like Him. May this be true of NBC. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your grace toward us, that You are the one who began the good work in us, that You have saved us, that You are saving us, and You will save us. I pray that we fix our eyes upon the return of Christ, that we would eagerly wait for Him. I pray that from now until then, that our love indeed would increase, that we would be more committed to you and your glory, that we would be more committed to the well-being of those around us, especially the other members of the church. We pray that this love would grow in knowledge, that we would long to learn about you, to spend time in our scriptures, that we would desire to learn of the deep things of God. And I pray that that would lead to a purity and a blamelessness in our life. Um, one that is fueled by love of God and goes forth in humility. And it does so for the praise and the glory and the honor of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.